right, this morning we're in John chapter 1 and other places as we go on a journey in God's Word. Um, you know, how many of you, you don't have to raise your hands with this, but how many of you are honest would say that sometimes God feels a million miles away? Uh, you know that God is, is with us, you know He's poured out His Holy Spirit, but in our experience and the way we feel, you would say, you know, heaven must be a long ways away. And when I was a kid, and actually probably even into young adult, I had this picture of the way the universe worked. And like, in spite of what scientists say, I saw the Earth as the center of the universe. That was kind of old school. Not flat, I saw it as round. But definitely as the center of the universe. And of course, I was the center of the world. Everything revolved around me. And uh, there's the Earth, and then there's, you know, the Milky Way galaxy, and then lots of other galaxies in and, and the universe. And then if you were to travel through space, come all the way to the end of the universe, there'd be like this wall, and if you could find a gate, you go through the wall, and there's heaven, right? And a lot of times it feels like God is really that far away. Um, and in our lives, we can feel kind of le lonely, left out. We wonder, you know, is God really with us? Is he really present? Or is he at the very far reaches of the universe and maybe peeking at us with, with a uh, super-powered telescope, but he's very distant and far away? Of course, the deists back in uh, like the 1700s really had that image of God. They said that God came, he created this universe, but now that it's up and running, uh, it doesn't need us anymore, it's pretty well self-maintaining, uh, self and that was kind of a result of, as scientists proved, how the universe really didn't need God to operate. It operated on its own principles, and it didn't need God to be here to run it. And so they said, well, God must not be here anymore. He's, uh, he's wound it up and he's left. And he's far, far away. Uh, Dallas Willard talks about Bible deists. He says kind of the same thing about God's word, that there's people who imagine God wrote down everything he wanted to say, handed us the Bible, and said, here it is, here's everything you need to know. If you need me, don't call, because I'm on vacation. And uh, he's gone, he's left, he's far away. And if we have concerns or worries, the best we can do is hope that somewhere in this cold letter he wrote, uh, he would speak to us, but he's not here. Uh, is that really how it is? Uh, our feelings would confirm that sometimes, but is that the truth? Or is God really much nearer than all that? Is God really here with us? Is it God's heart and desire to walk with us and to meet with us and to travel with us on life's journey? Well, uh, we're looking at, at the Gospel of John, and one of the great themes of the Gospel of John is that Jesus came to bring God near to us. And really, much of the Gospel of John spins out of these words in, in verse 14 of chapter 1, where John writes, So the Word became human and lived or dwelled here among us. Uh, he put his tent in the midst of us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son of the Father. And then down in verse 18, he continues on, no one has ever seen God, but Jesus, his only Son, who is himself God, is near to the Father's heart, and he is explaining or telling us about God. And that really is a lot of what the message of John is about. That Jesus came to bring God up close and personal so that we could walk with him, we could dwell with him, he would be in our midst. And uh, some people say, well, that was all good you know, for the disciples, but sometimes I feel like Jesus is just as far away as God. You know, God lives in heaven. After Jesus died, he returned to heaven. And now they're both light years away. 
Uh, is that the way it is? Well, uh, we want to look that God is with us in Jesus. Um, if we jump ahead to the end of chapter 1, uh, throughout this chapter, there's this theme uh, hidden in some of the translations, but it's very clear in the Greek, that all these people were seeing Jesus or they were not seeing Jesus. We looked last uh, first week, I believe, last week, that the Pharisees, the le- religious, leaders did, religious leaders, did not see him. They missed him. I mean, they, saw, they, they came, they looked for him, but they didn't find him. But we've got this string of people who see him. John the Baptist sees him. And he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And uh, soon John's own disciples, as John declares Jesus walking around in their midst, declares, This is him. This is the Messiah. They, they also begin to see him. And the first two who see the truth in this is, is Andrew and probably John, the writer of the Gospel. Uh, it, in verse 40 it says, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of these men who had heard what John the Baptist had said and followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was went to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. Then Andrew brought Simon to meet Jesus, and looking intently at Simon, Jesus said, you are Simon, the son of John, but you will be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Come, be my disciple. Philip was from the town of Bethsaida, Andrew and Peter's hometown. So then Philip went out to look for Nathanael and told him, We have found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus, the son of of Joseph from Nazareth. Nazareth, exclaimed Nathanael, Can anything good come from Nazareth? Philip said, Come and see for yourself. As they approached, Jesus said, Here comes an honest man, a true son of Israel. How do you know about me? Nathanael asked. Jesus replied, I could see you under the fig tree before Philip found you. Nathanael replied, Teacher, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. Jesus asked him, You believe all this just because I told you I had seen you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. The truth is, you will see heaven open and the angels of God going up and down upon the Son of Man. All these guys got to see Jesus firsthand because they they looked for him and God revealed, they opened their eyes and they saw Jesus firsthand. Uh, And that's largely what this is about. God desires that we see him firsthand. Of course, they got to see the physical, literal Jesus, uh, but they still actually saw him not because he was real and physical, but they saw him through the eyes of faith. Same thing is true for us. We will see Jesus uh, through the eyes of faith. Um, it's clear in this passage that there is a cost of admission. Uh, these guys saw Jesus because they did have faith. Not just that he could be somebody important, but they had faith that he was the Messiah, that he was the promised one of God. Uh, They had faith that he was worthy to invest their life in as a follower. Um, It's interesting, as they each saw, almost all of them turned at once and found somebody and brought to him. Uh, But it's interesting, even though they all brought somebody to Jesus, it still took a personal first-hand encounter of seeing him for themselves, for them to get it. In fact, I love uh, Nathaniel's response, you know, uh, Philip comes and he says, Man, Nathaniel, we have found the Messiah, 
the one Moses and the prophets talk about. And he says he's from Nazareth. And, uh, you know, Philip, or Nathaniel just can't imagine this because Nazareth, Nazareth is like Hicksville. It's like nowhere. It's like, you know, cows don't leave Nazareth. Okay, and I come from a very rural part of America where we, we were the end of the world. But there was another town down the road even farther towards the end of the world than us. It was called Dove Creek. And for us, we would have said, you know, if somebody said Jesus came from Dove Creek, we would have said, what? <laughs> nothing comes from Dove Creek. No, nothing ever leaves Dove Creek. Like we used to make fun of it. We used to call it Pigeon Ditch, you know, Dove Creek, Pigeon Ditch. Uh, you know, and there was like this rivalry. Well, that's kind of how it was with, like, like Nathaniel wasn't from Jerusalem. Nathaniel was from, you know, this far out, also equally remote place, and there was probably some rivalry going on there. He says, nothing good can come from there. And, and Philip says simply, come and see for yourself. Come and check it out. And Nathaniel went, and uh, Jesus sees him coming, and he says, behold, here is a true Israelite, a man of character and integrity. And Nathaniel, with all of this great cynicism and skepticism, says, what, how do you know me? What are you telling me about myself? Who are you? And Jesus says simply, I saw you hanging out under the fig tree. Um, no ex explanation of what that means, but Phil, uh, Nathaniel knew exactly what it meant. And at a time when Nathaniel thought he was in a place where no one was watching, no one was looking, no one saw him, Jesus saw him. And that truth uh, was enough to convince Nathaniel that, that Jesus was more than just an average, ordinary person, that this was God incarnate, that this was the Messiah, somebody empowered uh, with the ability to see into his life. Jesus showed, showed the same insight when he looked at Peter. He came, his brother brought him, and he said, Simon, you gotta, we found the Messiah. Simon goes to check it out for himself. When he comes, it says that Jesus looked intently, looked deeply at Simon. And he says to him, you're Simon. Again, no introduction, Jesus knew. And he says, you're going to be called Cephas, the rock. You're going to be called Peter. And Jesus saw deep into Peter's life, and he saw what Peter would someday become as Jesus worked in and through his life. And uh, because of those witnesses, because of the witness of their friends, because of the witness of John the Baptist, these men began this great journey of faith, and they saw Jesus as the great teacher, the rabbi, the Messiah. Um, and this section ends with a very interesting um, word from Jesus. And he says to, uh, he says to Nathaniel, and actually to all the disciples of you there as plural, he says, now you think you've seen a lot just because I told you what you were doing under the fig tree, or I saw you uh, when nobody was looking. You are going to see much greater things than this. And he says a phrase that's repeated throughout the gospel, truly, truly, or in the old King James, verily, verily. Okay? Truly, truly. Uh, in the uh, in the Greek, aletheus, aletheus. It says it twice. And it's a word that means throughout the Gospel of John that says, okay, here's a key point. Pay close attention to this. This is a truth you want to grab hold of and hang on to, not only for the disciples, but for us as well. And Jesus says, okay, here's the point of chapter 1. Okay, I'm going to explain it to you really clear and simple. So take notes. Okay, ready for this? He says, you will see greater things than this, far greater things. In fact, he says, you will see heaven opened, and you will see angels 
walking up and down on the Son of Man. Okay, yay. Boy, I feel much better now. Because that makes total sense to me. Yeah, I like the whole heaven open thing. But Jesus becoming like a sidewalk for angels, I don't get it. Uh, first of all, he says that you will see this happen to the Son of Man. Clearly a reference to himself. Jesus uses this label, this title throughout the Gospels. What does it mean? Well, it's interesting. Jesus really avoids words like prophet, king, uh, messiah, because he knew that as the, as the religious leaders had already proven, they were looking for a messiah, but not the kind of messiah that Jesus was. And so Jesus really avoided those titles. And he wanted to pick a title that would express his unique relationship to God the Father, but would do it very covertly. So he picks this title, and it really comes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And in this passage, Daniel has a vision, and he says this, As my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. So he sees this heavenly being, but he describes him as one who's like a son of man, like human, but clearly coming from heaven. He, appro- he approached the ancient one, God, and was led into his presence. He was given authority and honor and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. Uh, when Jesus says the Son of Man, he's not just saying simply, oh yeah, I'm this human being. He really is speaking of this Son of Man, I believe, that, that, that's spoken of in Daniel. The one who had been given authority over heaven and earth. But it was a title that was very cloaked. And when he used it, it went by most people, the Son of Man. They didn't catch the significance of that title. So he says that he's speaking of himself, the Son of Man, this one who's given this authority and power, becomes a human sidewalk for angels, okay? Or a ladder, if you will, or a stairway. Okay, well, this doesn't sound very glorifying or authoritative or powerful, um, and I don't get it. Well, to get it, you have to look at it through the lens of the Old Testament. And clearly, this is a reference to Jacob's ladder. And uh, he is, he's inferring here uh, truth that comes out of the story about Jacob and Jacob's ladder, Jacob's stairway to heaven. So to really get what Jesus is saying here, we need to look in Genesis chapter 28 and see Jesus as he's described and portrayed to the story of Jacob. So let's turn there, and we're going to take just a moment and uh, take a, a good look, because this story really helps explain and picture what Jesus is to us. Um, We'll start in chapter 28, verse 10. Uh, it says, Meanwhile, Jacob left Beersheba and traveled toward Haran. At sundown he came and he arrived at a, at a good place to set up camp and he stopped there for the night. Jacob found a stone for a pillow and lay down to sleep. Um, stop there. Okay, Jacob's on a journey from Beersheba to Haran. Um, and to be honest, Jacob finds himself in a very tough place. Okay, the reason he's leaving Beersheba, which is where his family was in the farther, far southern tip of what, what would be eventually Judea, probably 50 or 60 miles, 80, 90 kilometers south of Jerusalem. He had left there and he was, had come to a place 
uh, most scholars believe was about 10 miles north of Jerusalem. So he traveled 70 kilometers, maybe 100 miles, 70 miles, perhaps 100 kilometers. Um, why was he going to Haran? Haran was the place where God had called Abraham, his grandfather, out of. And uh, he had called Abraham out of that place, out of idol worship, out of a life of pagan idol worship and sin, to a walk of faith and promise. Uh, And Jacob was now returning to that place, leaving his home, leaving the land of promise, why was he doing that? Well, for a very practical reason. His brother wanted to kill him. Uh, and he wanted to kill him because really Jacob was kind of a jerk. He was a conniver. He was a thief. He was a liar. And throughout his years growing up and young adulthood, he had cheated his brother numerous times. And the two most notable ones recorded in Scripture, uh, he tricked uh, his birthright out of his brother Esau, uh, his inheritance, he basically tricked, tricked it, got it from Esau. Then, uh, as his father was about to die and was sick and ailing, he stole the blessing of his father. And Esau was furious, irate. And he had vowed in his heart, determined in his heart, to kill his brother. Mom finds out about it, says, you know, your brother, he's really mad. And, you know, if you want to live to see your next birthday, leave, now. And so... Jacob packs his belongings and he runs for his life because he knows that when dad dies, things will not go well for him if he hangs around. And he finds himself out in the middle of nowhere, very remote desert wilderness area, finds himself very, very alone. And uh, the, the Bible doesn't really give us a lot of insight into what he was thinking or feeling, but it doesn't take much imagination to put yourself in his shoes and get an idea of what he was experiencing. He was totally alone, traveling by himself, uh, in, a, in a land where he already was a foreigner and a stranger, going to a place where he, he, his family has not lived for two generations. No one knows him. He is alone. A lone and lonely guy. Um, he, uh, which is interesting, when you, when you see this in the light of John chapter 1, you know, when Nathaniel comes to Jesus, uh, Jesus declares, here is a true Israelite, which, by the way, Jacob becomes Israel, a true Israelite in whom there is no deception. Okay, I think Jesus is already thinking about, about Jacob. And there's some interesting parallels there. Here's this guy who's, who's a deceiver, and a lot of his loneliness has come because he is a jerk. Okay, sometimes we find ourselves lonely because of circumstances. Sometimes... Like Jacob, we end up on a journey far from home. We find ourselves in some crazy place like Thailand, and we are alone, and we don't know anybody, and we don't have friends, and we've left family and friends and church back home, and we're alone. But sometimes we're lonely because we're a jerk, because we have done things to offend the people that could be our friends. And we have done things to alienate and push away, whether deliberately or unconsciously, people who could be our friends, and we find ourselves like, Jacob in a lonely place. Uh, Certainly he was lonely. Uh, Certainly he was feeling the pain of being by himself. Uh, Also, he was, I think, uh, and I would guess, anxious about both his past and his future. 
And we get a glimpse of that a little bit later when he, when he, uh, when he makes this vow to God. That you can get a picture of the things that he's worried about. He's worried about things like, you know, like lunch. Like, is there a, is there a McDonald's or a Burger King in the next village? You know, I've never been to these places. Am I going to be able to get food? You know, his, uh, his money may have been running out. He already walked about 70 miles. Maybe his shoes were wearing out. And he's thinking, you know, I hope, man, I hope there's a just for feet at the next town. I've got to buy shoes. He's worried about, um, you know, when I get to Haran, am, am I going to get a job? Is anybody going to hire me? Am I going to be able to support myself? He's worried about these things. He's anxious about the future. He's apprehensive about what's lying ahead. Um, he probably is, is anxious about his own past. Uh, he had ripped off his brother. He was a jerk, and maybe in the loneliness he's starting to realize, you know, I really am not a very nice person. There's reasons why I'm lonely. And maybe he felt bad. Certainly, I'm sure he felt, even that far away, the wrath of his brother. And it never feels good when people are angry at you. It hurts. And uh, no matter how much we may try to justify our actions, when we know we've disappointed and hurt people, it hurts deep inside. And we can try to rationalize it, but there is pain and anxiety that goes with it. And he knows that if he ever comes back to this land, he has to face this brother who wants to kill him. And in fact, later, when he does return, that anxiety is still very real and very present in his life. Um, he was fearful for his life. He's in a place where he has no protection. He's vulnerable. Anybody could just walk along rob him, murder him, drag him off and leave him for dead, no one would know. Uh, he's not real secure at where he's at. Have you ever felt that way? Uh, <laughs> you ever felt like you're just alone, nobody cares about you, nobody knows about you? Um, maybe mistakes and things in your own life have got you in that place, or maybe just following God's leading. Uh, you can also make the point that Jacob was obeying his parents at this point. His mom and dad both told him, you must leave. Um, sometimes just obeying God ends us in a place where we feel lonely and alone and anxious. Uh, have you ever been in a place where you're worried about the future? You know, is God going to provide? Is, is the money going to be there? Is somebody going to give me a job? Um, or are the people who I'm working for now going to fire me? Uh, you know, what's the future hold? Well, we've all been in places in our life like that. But what makes those places even more difficult, which, and which I think were even more painful for Jacob, was I believe as he laid out there in this dark, barren wilderness alone, I think that deep down in his heart he sensed not God's presence, but the sense that God was a million light years away. And again, I think that because of what he says later uh, and what God says to him. Uh, I know if, if I were in Jacob's place, and Jacob had not been a man of faith, he had not up to this point been a guy who had proven this real deep prayer walk with God. Uh, he got where he was because he was a guy who didn't walk with God and did not live by faith. And he had no reason to believe or suspect that God was paying attention to him. And I believe Jacob lay there wondering if there was a God, and if he was, where was he? Was he a million miles away? Did God take any notice of his life? 
You know, we look at the story from the outside looking back through history, and, and we realize that Jacob is like one of the main guys in the story. He's got like a leading role in this, in this history, and that he would become a significant player, uh, a significant person that God would use to raise up this whole nation, that God would change his name from Jacob to Israel. He would become the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, and all kinds of other amazing things would happen. He would come back with wealth, and he would indeed inherit this land. But see, we know the whole story. Jacob didn't know the story. And as far as he was concerned, he looked at, it, at his life, he was nobody. He was some guy on the run from his family because he was a jerk, out there in the middle of nowhere, certainly not deserving any of God's goodness or grace, alone in the world, far, far removed from God. Well, just at that time and just in that place, when Jacob felt those things, God does the most amazing thing and he reveals himself to Jacob. And he says, as, as, as Jacob slept, he dreamed of a stairway that reached from earth to heaven and he saw the angels of God going up and down on it. And at the top of the stairway stood the Lord and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your grandfather Abraham, the God of your father Isaac. The ground you are lying on belongs to you. I will give it to you and your descendants. Your descendants will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. They will cover the land from east to west and from north to south. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through you and your descendants. What's more, I will be with you and I will protect you wherever you go. I will someday bring you safely back to this land. I will be with you constantly until I have finished giving you everything I have promised. It's amazing that God steps down and reveals himself at this moment to Jacob. And I think much more significant than the place is the timing. And Jacob, uh, you know, he saw it as the place. Jacob saw it as somehow a significant place. Like this is the, the stairway. This is where heaven and earth meet. Uh, this is the place where heaven and earth touch. And he thought it was because there was something magical about that place. If only it were that simple. And we know from later in history that, that uh, Bethel turns out not to be such a place of divine presence. In fact, it becomes a place of terrible idol worship, and God finally has to wipe it out because it's so evil and wicked. But at this moment, in this place, it was significant, not because of the place so much as the place where Jacob was. It was the place where Jacob desperately needed God to reveal himself, where he needed God to not be a million miles away, light years off in space, but he needed to understand God was present with him, that God indeed did have a plan and purpose for his life, and that God was there. And so God does at this very crucial place in Jacob's life, give him this vision. And it is this bizarre, to us, what would be a very bizarre picture of like this ladder or stairway, heaven on top and Jacob at the bottom and like this big escalator, you know, with angels going up and down with elevator music playing in the background. That's kind of my picture, twisted picture of this, of this scene. Well, we don't really picture heaven that way. As I said, I tend to, be, I tend to see the universe as a much bigger place than Jacob did. Um, we have an understanding of the universe extending far, far through space. And if you got to get through all of space to get to heaven, it would take a really long stairway. Okay? It would take like, you know, some kind of Star Wars style stairway, okay, to make this work. Because our picture of space is much bigger. But for Jacob, it didn't work that way. For Jacob, 
uh, Earth and space were much closer together. Uh, and, and to get to heaven just simply meaning to get to the top of the clouds. Now, when I was a very small child, that's where heaven was. I could see the clouds float by, and I could imagine heaven was on the other side of those clouds. And I remember as a kid thinking, I remember thinking this, that if, you know, those Babylonians could try to make a tower high enough, I could too. And if I got, like, in the tallest tree I could get in, and I got, like, enough ladders, and I could do this, right? Well, that was more the way Jacob saw the world. And in fact, it really is what the, the ziggurats of, of Babylon represented. They really did believe that they could build this stairway so that the gods could step out of heaven and walk down to earth. And that's really what Jacob is picturing here, this place where heaven's really not that far away. And he finds, as it were, a portal, a doorway, a magic stairway, where, where the door of heaven stands. And walking up and down this stairway were angels. Now, what's significant about this is not so much that there are angels, and a lot of times we get all hung up on what are the angels doing, where are they going, who are they. Um, the point is simply that it's the place where God, heaven opens, and God is doing business on earth. And the angels really represent God's business as he sends out his messengers and his ministers throughout the world and conducts business on earth. It's this place where heaven and earth meet where God opens the door of heaven and he steps into earth and he conducts business and activity there. And Jacob amazingly finds himself in this spot where heaven and earth touch and where God has opened the door and God is doing business on earth. Uh, most translations translate this that God is at the top of the stairs, but uh, all the, the scholars and resources that I looked at said a much better way to translate this in the Hebrew is that God was actually at, at the side of the stair, at the, at the top of Jacob. So the angels are going up and down. There's the, there's the door of heaven. There's heaven right there, and all kinds of businesses going on. People are taking memos, packages, you know, uh, blessings for places to deliver them. Uh, but God's not standing on the stairway. He's standing beside it at the head of Jacob. Much better picture as God steps out of heaven, comes to earth, and comes to where Jacob is, comes alongside him, and he says, Jacob, the land where you are sleeping belongs to you. And God reveals himself two ways here. First of all, as the God of promise. Secondly, as the God who will be with Jacob. First of all, the promises. He said, this land is yours. You've been walking for several days. You've walked some hundred kilometers. Every place you have set your foot, it's yours. It's not yours because you deserve it, because you're kind of a loser. God doesn't say that, but, you know, Jacob already knows. He says, you didn't earn this. I'm not giving it to you because you connived your brother out of the birthright. That's not why I'm giving it to you. I'm giving it to you because I am a God of grace, and I have determined to bless you with this land. It is my gift to you, not by your doing, but by my doing. This land where you sleep is yours. And not only that, but as I promised your grandfather Jacob and your father Isaac, you, through you, you're going to have a really big family. Okay, you better brace yourself because you're going to have a lot of kids and they're going to have a lot of kids. And someday your descendants will be like sand of the sea. And they're going to fill this land from north to south, east to west. It's going to be possessed by you. Um, basically, God is telling Jacob here, you are part of my story. You are part of my plan for the universe. You think that you are this insignificant nothing 
whose life does not count. But let me tell you, you are written in the script of my story. And it is a huge story, and you are a central figure. In fact, he goes on to say that through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Clearly a reference to the coming of the Messiah, to Jesus, who would come and who would bless all the nations. And God assures him, promises him, this is my plan, and this is my program, and you are a key part of it. You are in the center of my plan. Don't think that your life is insignificant and meaningless. It has tremendous meaning because it's in, the, in my plan. That's the promise. Then he goes on and he, he declares that he'll be with him. And he says, you know, Jacob, I am going to go with you. These are very important words. And, and part of the deal for, for Jacob is that going back to Haran was a huge step backwards. It was leaving the land of promise. It was leaving the God of his fathers. It was leaving behind the blessing and covenant relationship between God and Abraham. Uh, It wasn't just going to a different country. It was leaving the land of promise. And I believe that Jacob wrestled with that deeply, that he was going the wrong direction. Okay, he was taking steps backward, not towards God's promise, but away from it. And I'm sure that deeply troubled him. And God assures him, don't worry. I am going with you to Haran. Okay, this might be where you're going to live someday, but it's not where I live. This might be the door to my house, but I'm bigger than that. And I'm traveling on this journey with you every step of the way. Don't be afraid. Don't worry. And then, in fact, God makes this amazing statement where he says, I will someday bring you safely back to this land. I will be with you constantly until I have finished giving you everything I have promised. God says, I'm going to be with you every single moment until I personally, as the God of the universe, accomplish all that I have promised to do in your life. I guarantee that I will fulfill completely my purpose and plan for your life. And I will bring you back and you will You will see my hand and what I have done, and I will walk with you. I guarantee by my presence, I'm going to do all that you, all that I have promised. Amazing words of hope and encouragement for Jacob. And really, they should be great words of promise and encouragement for us as well. Um, God does go with us. And the truth is that if you have become a follower of Jesus, you equally are an important part in God's history. There's nothing about our life that is insignificant or small once we become part of God's plan. You know, as it turns out, Jacob did have a lot of kids. He had 12 kids and lots of grandkids, and he got to see that. But he never really got to see the full impact of God's (coughs) promise that came through him. Ultimately, he didn't get to see Jesus who came and redeemed the world. But Jacob was very much a part of that. You may think that your life is is small and insignificant, but it is not. And you don't know how God will use the seed that's planted through your life to touch people around the world. Uh, In John chapter 1, John talks about Jesus being the source of grace instead of grace. Uh, verse 17, he says, The law came through Moses, God's... Oh no, verse 16. 
We have, been, we have all benefited from the rich blessings he brought to us, one gracious blessing after another. And we talked a couple weeks ago that that is best translated God's grace coming in place of or instead of grace. With the idea that what God has graced us with far exceeds the grace of the Old Testament. And here's a great example. God gave Jacob some incredible promises. Uh, it would be easy to sit and think, man, I wish God would make that kind of promise to me. You know, I could go for some land. I wouldn't even take a whole country. You know, like, one acre would be good. You know, a couple of Durangwa would be just, or um, a couple of rye, we'll take a rye, you know, a few hundred Durangwa would be great. I don't need a whole country. Why doesn't God make promises like that to me? The truth is, we have received grace instead of grace. We have received grace much greater. Think about God's promises to us. We don't just inherit a land. We inherit the kingdom of the heavens. Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of the earth, the kingdom of heaven. Okay, who needs, who needs countries when we can have, like, everything? Okay, we are inheritors. We are joint heirs with Christ. Everything that Jesus himself inherits, we are partakers in. Uh, do you believe God's promise? God has promised us everything in the universe is at our disposal. Uh, God's purpose and plan for us is no less significant than it was for Jacob. Jacob would see his promise come through many, many generations. But Jesus has called us and said, you are my witnesses, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. My plan and purpose, my story for you is that you will touch directly the nations of the world. And certainly as you sit here this morning, your life is doing just that. You are touching the nations of the world. And you are living it firsthand, whereas Jacob only saw it uh, in the far distant future. Uh, we could go on and on about God's amazing promises to us. And the lesson is this. When we're feeling lonely, discouraged, afraid, wiped out, we need to seek that God would reveal to us himself as a God of promises and as a God who is present with us. Talk about a promise. He said, yeah, Jacob, I will go with you. God has promised us that he'll not only go with us, but that he will dwell within us through the, through the Holy Spirit. Uh, later in John, he talks about God building his house with us. In fact, you know, when we look back at John chapter 1, Jesus said, you will see greater things. You will see heaven opened, and you will see what? The angels descending and ascending upon the Son of Man. What is Jesus talking about? He's saying this. Jacob saw the place where heaven and earth meet, and he said it was Bethel. But I tell you this. I am the place where heaven and earth meet. Heaven is open to you through my coming, through my presence, and through my life. And as you know and walk with me, all of heaven becomes open to you. And the wonder and glory of God becomes your possession. Well, at the end of, of uh, the dream, Jacob wakes up and uh, he is, you know, he's kind of overwhelmed. And he is amazed at what he's seen. And this is what he says. Jacob woke up and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place. 
and I wasn't even aware of it. And he was afraid, and he said, What an awesome place this is. It is none other than the house of God, the gateway to heaven. And he took a stone, and he used it as a pill- the stone he used as a pillow, and he set it upright as a memorial pillar. Then he poured olive oil over it, and he named the place Bethel, house of God, though the name of the nearby city was called Luz. Um, Jacob wakes up and he says, surely this is the house of God. And by that, uh, Jacob is not imagining or believing that God lived there. Okay? Like, if God really lived on earth anywhere, I'm pretty sure it would be Colorado, not there. Right? Because it's so much more beautiful. Um, That's not what Jacob had in mind, though, that somehow God uh, had built a house in this remote desert wilderness place. Instead, what he meant, I really believe, is this, that, that this was the place where God's house and earth met. That if you could go up those stairs, you would go into heaven, out of this world, into God's dwelling place, into God's residence. And what was significant about this place for Jacob is he saw it as the place where heaven and earth meet, the place where the goodness and glory of God touched the earth. And that's a good place to be. And Jacob wanted to memorialize and remember this place where he had touched the very presence of God in this place where God had set his foot at this doorway, as it were, to God's house where heaven and earth meet. And uh, he wants to remember this place. He wants to commemorate this place because he knew that he had met God there, that God had revealed himself in a very clear and encouraging way, and he was blessed. In fact, it says that he was, he was so blessed he was scared to death. Um, you know, when God truly blesses us, when God truly reveals himself to us, there's a mixed sense of great joy and terror, of awe and wonder and fear. And at the place where heaven and earth meet, you know you're there when you're both excited and terrified. Excited because it's a place of amazing joy and blessing in God's presence. Terrified because it means the stripping away of my own life. Because at this point, Jacob had a choice to abandon God's plan and do his own thing or to yield and follow God's plan. And the truth is, in our own life, we come to that same spot where God reveals himself to us, God opens the door of heaven to us, he gives us a glimpse of his blessing, his promise, his presence, and we have that same exact choice to say, God, I abandon my own agenda and my own plans because I want to... I want to walk with you. But that's a terrifying thing to let go of self, uh, to let go of our own ambition, to let go of our dreams and visions and grab hold of his dream and his vision for our life. And so he was terrified at the presence of God and at what it would mean for him. But he was also excited. And he wanted to remember this awesome and terrible and wonderful place. Uh, as he was, as it were, knocking on heaven's door, as he was at this place where Jesus met him. And he names the place Bethel, house of God, the place where heaven and earth meet. When Jesus alludes to this story, that's what he means. When he says the place where the, he- where the, you know, the angels trod up and down, uh, he is saying, I am the doorway to heaven. I am the one who opens to you the wonder and presence and glory of God. I am the one who makes available to you all of God's promises. 
in, in the Lord's Supper, when, when uh, we say, you know, we drink the, the cup of his blood, the cup of covenant, uh, what that means is that Jesus has sealed by his own blood the promise. That he has guaranteed all of God's promises by his own blood. And that's what Jesus is alluding to when he, when he mentions this story. He says, through me, to you, all of heaven is open. Wouldn't you love to just, you know, J- Jacob memorializes this place. He sets up a stone. I think he found the largest stone he could, he could find that he could, he could stand upright. And he stands it upright. He anoints it with oil to consecrate it, to dedicate it to God. Because he wants to remember this place. Why? Well, a couple reasons. For one, I don't think he really caught the full significance that God was going with him. I don't think he totally believed that. And he's thinking, I know what Jacob's thinking, he's thinking in his mind, you know, if I get in the jam and I get stuck and I need God, I want to be able to come back here and knock on his door. Say, hello, God, are you home? Hello, I need some help here. He didn't want to forget this place because this is the doorway to God's house. And if you ever got in trouble or lonely or needed help or there was like bad guys chasing him, maybe he was imagining coming and meeting his brother. And he thought, this would be a good place. And if his brother tries to kill me, for one, if I die, I'm real close to heaven. I can get there. But if not, maybe I'll knock on God's door and first say, God, um, help. Is this guy about to kill me? Uh, Do you want to know where God lives? Well, Jesus says, God lives in me. You don't have to go to Bethel. You don't have to go to Israel to find this place where earth touches heaven. All you have to do is find me. And as John had said earlier, no one has seen God. But Jesus, who came from the very bosom, from the very heart of the Father, came to open heaven to us, to open the wonders and glory of God's promise and his presence to us. That's the significance of this illustration or this example. Um, Jacob goes on to to mark or to memorialize this spot. He sets up the stone. Uh, He wants to remember this place. Uh, Partly, as I said, because he doesn't want to He wants to come back here, he wants to have access to it. But also, this is an important reminder that God met him. Here's the question for us. Has God revealed himself to you? At some point in your past, when you were lonely and discouraged and wondering if God was close by, has God met you? Uh, The truth is that God does go with us every moment. Uh, God promised that to Jacob. He promises that to us. He walks with us everywhere we are. It doesn't matter where you go. It doesn't matter what fig tree you're sitting under or you think you're alone. God is with you. But it's equally true that God does not reveal that to us every moment equally. There are times in life when God specially reveals to us that promise. There are moments when maybe we're discouraged or where we're at a crossroads where we're uncertain about our future, where God meets us in a very special way. And he reminds us, you know, I'm still with you. My promises are still good. My word is still good. I haven't left you. It is important to mark those times. It is important to memorialize those places in our life where God has met us and revealed himself to us in a special way. That's a lot of what baptism is about. Baptism is really the first great sign and memorial stone of our life where we say, you know, Jesus revealed himself to me as Savior and Lord. And I want to remember 
the day I put my faith and trust in him, I became his child through baptism into his life, through the death of Christ. I want to do that through uh, the act of being baptized. And that should be something we always look back to in our life as a memorial stone, as a reminder that God revealed himself to us. We were in darkness, and he called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. But as we go through life's journey, uh, there are a lot of times when God meets us at crucial moments. It's good to remember those. Uh, one of the best ways to do that is to journal. And I'm not a real great journaler, actually. I do it. I have a journal, and all the journals of my whole life would fill up, like, maybe one notebook. But I do from time to time write things down, and I especially try to write down those moments when God has met me in a, particular, a particularly powerful way and he's revealed himself specially. The truth is, God did not reveal himself to Jacob every single day. You know, he didn't give him visions like this every day. It was a long time. In fact, God really doesn't appear to him until many, many years later when Jacob returns to the same spot. And lo and behold, there's God hanging out at the door to his house. And he talks to him again. It was a long time in between. And Jacob needed reminders of that. We need reminders of that. Write down, if you don't journal any other time, I would encourage you to write down those moments when God has revealed himself in a special way. Otherwise, we forget. We start feeling lonely and discouraged and frustrated and we think God's a million miles away. But if we go back and look at those reminders, we go, oh yeah, he was with me, he is with me, he promised. Uh, another good reminder are symbols. And for, for Jacob, this rock became a symbol. And I think symbols are good things. Communion for us is one of those reminding symbols of God's presence, God's promises. But it's good to have our own personal, private symbols. Uh, for you, maybe it's a piece of jewelry. Uh, maybe God, and this is a good, okay, ladies, here's a good excuse. You need to buy some jewelry. God meets you in a special, powerful way. You say to your husband, you know, God just did so many cool things in my life. I want to mark that with, you know, some new piece of jewelry. And when I wear this, uh, it'll be a reminder. And your husband's going, yeah, okay, sure, right. God sure has been talking to you a lot lately. Okay. There's some, there, there's some, there is some meaning in that, though. Uh, for me, one of the most uh, significant marks of, of God's presence when God did this for me is actually a symbol that came out of the event. And I have in my possession, not with me here uh, in Thailand, sadly. I'd like to figure out how to get it here. But I have an eagle feather. Now, to possess, in the United States, to possess an eagle feather is a, is a mandatory $10,000 fine. So I am a wanted man. I am a fugitive. And if any of you are with the fish Division of Game and Fish and Wildlife, you know, I'll have to assassinate you before you leave the country. Um, but I've got this eagle feather. And I'm keeping this eagle feather because I'm convinced God gave it to me and, and nobody's going to take it from me uh, if I have to pay the $10,000 fine. And uh, the story behind it is this was at a time in my life when I was first beginning to um, become aware of the fact that God was present with me. I had known God. I'd been a believer. I'd actually gone to Bible college, and I had all this theology about God being present. But I didn't really understand that when God said he was with me, that that meant he was actually with me, like personally, like with me really. And that he wanted to speak things directly to my heart that his word was not just generically and randomly given, that God wanted to speak and meet and have an adventure with me personally. 
And for me, this now it seems kind of silly, but at the time it was a, um, a startling reality. And at first, I really didn't believe it. I thought, you know, God, you're like big. You've got like billions of people to look after. I felt a lot like J Jacob probably did, as just this lonely traveler, insignificant in the universe. But God began to impress upon me that I was precious to him and an important part, and that I, my life was worth his, his speaking to me individually, worth working in me personally. And I happened to be on a backpack trip. I used to lead these trips with high school students way up in the mountains. We were up on top of this very high mountain in Colorado where I do believe God does live. And um, we just climbed this large mountain, and we were on our way down, and I'm hiking down, and lo and behold, laying on the ground is this eagle feather. And I thought, well, this is just, like, way cool, because you just don't find these things laying around. And, in fact, I had never, ever in my life seen an eagle flying at that altitude. Uh, you, the, the, I'd just never seen one up in that part of the mountains. Well, I picked up this feather, and it became a great treasure to me. And uh, I thought, this is cool. And I, I begin to think to myself, because at this time I was, I was really thinking about God speaking to me, about God communicating to me, about him working in my life. And I begin thinking, I wonder if God's trying to tell me something through this silly feather. Well, the next day we climbed another mountain, very long mountain, and very, very difficult. And there were several places where it was just very hairy and scary. Uh, if the mothers of these children knew where I had taken them, I'm sure they would have sued me. And, uh, God, but God had always proven himself very faithful in protecting us and watching over us and keeping us from falling off large cliffs. And we're coming down one of these, these uh, cliffs. We're in the snow field. It's very treacherous. And out of nowhere comes this eagle. And it starts flying and circling right where, we are, where we're traveling. And at one point, this eagle flies around and looks me straight in the eye. So I'm looking eyeball to eyeball with this eagle. I'm thinking, this is just cool. I, this is amazing. I've never had an experience like that where I just was eyeball to eyeball with this eagle. And I, I just thought, you know, I have your feather. I found your feather. And it's like the, the eagle looks at me and he says, like, I know, I gave it to you. And I'm thinking, wow, this is just weird. I feel like, you know, I'm in Narnia or something. And um, I went back and I thought, okay, you know, one day I find the feather. The next day the eagle shows up. Uh, I think God's talking to me. Okay, I think this is more than coincidence. And I started looking through my Bible, started reading the Word, and, and uh, I came across this amazing passage in, in Exodus where God promised Israel, promised Moses, says, I will carry you on eagles' wings, uh, on, on the pinions of an eagle. And I just thought, you know, God is speaking to me, and he is telling me, Tim, I am carrying you along. I am protecting you. I am with you. Uh, personally, I am carrying you in my wings, in my talons. Um, needless to say, I kept the feather. And for me, that has been, uh, for a long time, it sat in my office. Um, to be honest, I've been scared to bring it out of the country because I, I don't want to go to jail and pay $10,000 and not pass go. Uh, so I haven't. But it was always a great symbol and reminder of God's presence with me, his living, active walk with me, that as I go through the cliffs and valleys and treacherous places of life, he is right there watching over me, carrying me along. We need to know that to live life successfully. Jacob needed to know that. 
And at the right moment, God stopped and revealed himself to Jacob in that way. Jacob didn't want to forget. And Jesus comes along many years later and he says, I am come to take that to the next level. I am grace instead of grace. What, what we promised Jacob was good. What I am promising you is infinitely better. As I open the doors of heaven to you, um, he says this to his disciples. His disciples were a lot the same place as Jacob was. Jacob makes some kind of weird vows to God. Basically, Jacob says, God, eh, we'll see. We'll see. You know, if all this comes to pass and I come back here, you will be my God, and uh, I will worship you in this place, and I will give you 10% of everything I own. But let's just see how it goes. The disciples were a lot in the same place. God made this promise. They weren't like going, hooray, heaven's open to us. They were like, you know, confused. Jesus said, you know, you feed them. They're going, we only got like a few crackers and some saltine, you know, some salty fish. They hadn't got it yet. You and I are on the same journey. And if we are honest with ourselves, a lot of times we are like Jacob. We're going, God, you promised this. You know, we'll see. We'll see if you come through or not. But God does come through, and he will. And he will accomplish and fulfill every good purpose he has called you to. Let's pray.